Hey there, I'm Jack Skeels, and welcome to the Art of Management podcast. I'm sitting here today with Steve Prentice, author and specialist in human technology relations. We're talking about managers. We're going to use a new lens, a Japanese one, not the one you probably expect, which would be Taichi Ono and Kaizen and all those good things, but a different filter, the classic Japanese movie genre, Kaiju, which you would know as Godzilla versus King Kong. Steve, tell us more about today. Well, thank you very much, Jack. It's great to be back here. And again, this is an extension of trying to understand how leaders and managers work with their teams. And so much of this has been done in a very academic standpoint, but it's kind of interesting to have a look at it from a different way, which is equally realistic, I think. If you look at managers as sort of like B-movie horror monsters, their approach to working with a team, dominating a team, does nothing to benefit those teams. In fact, it can do a whole lot worse. So I'm really looking forward to digging into the notion of management, the art of management, from the B-movie Japanese monster mindset. Let's get started. That sounds great. Well, I mean, we can start with, you know, putting one foot back into reality. Uh, First of all, I was looking at an article in The Economist recently, and there's articles every single day about management and work and workplace and hybrid and so on. This was a similar, same old kind of tug of war thing about what managers were doing and saying when it comes to being a manager. Now companies are thinking more about hiring and how they have been, up until now, hiring charismatic managers up until this point. And now they're suddenly thinking about, oh my goodness, maybe we should let employees actually do what they want. And that word charismatic, that just kind of struck me. The tradition of hiring charismatic managers as leaders, as compared to giving people the chance to do their own work, really kind of resonated with me here. So to me, from my perspective, it reflects kind of a dividing line or a potential dividing line between the sausage factory approach that we've all known about getting hired and onboarded and working through the career path, and also, of course, applies to schooling from kindergarten onwards to to now this new notion of things like the four-day work week and much more relaxed approaches to time and tasks and trust. So that's what I want to see is how do we get to the point where we're not perceiving managers anymore as these kinds of domineering B-movie monsters, rather what they should really be, which is the cathartic centerpiece of a productive team. How do these managers turn away from being these kinds of creatures? Well, I think that's a great question. We never get that answered in the Japanese B-movies, do we? Where did, where exactly did King Kong come from? And I think it's interesting, though, if you look at what happens inside of organizations and largely the way we promote people. It's called a meritocracy. People earn merit and rank through their actions. That's how they climb the ladder, climb the pyramid, if you will. But it isn't necessarily a pretty thing. And there's some interesting research around it as well. But there's also a dark side to it. It's one of the sources of bias that we hear about all the time these days, and a lot of different versions of things like prediction bias, in-group, out-group bias, that basically mean we can't tell who's doing well or not, so we tend to promote people that are like us, or accomplish external things that we somehow measure that may not make them good managers. So where Godzilla came from? He's probably more likely to be promoted by another Godzilla than another King Kong, right? but certainly not one of the citizens down below. And I think that's sort of the gap there. I mean, Godzilla might be okay with a King Kong, tolerant of another of King Kong, even though it's not a Godzilla, but certainly not a citizen. And in this way, we end up with these weird sort of in-groups and out-groups, a sort of layering inside of organizations. What goes on at the top of an organization isn't particularly pretty either. 
a lot of times it ends up being more about political and social skills than the real talents that we'd want in a manager. I think the analogy of the movie Monster here doesn't have to be silly in the sense of uh, when you think about that, you think about the darker side, the more aggressive side of getting to those particular positions of power. There's a lot less pleasant stuff that can happen just to simply claw your way to the top. But there are a lot of managers who are also striving to do better, to try and understand what it is that's making them have difficulties. And I know that I was reading in one of your posts before about the notion of the aggridant personality and how this can lead into it. So my first question, of course, from your perspective and knowledge, what does aggridant actually mean? The idea of the aggridant is really, really interesting. It comes from some research in the 40s and 50s, and it ties to this idea of pecking order, which a lot of us are familiar with. We generally think that means a rank order, like who's on the top of the list and the like, but it really comes from the observation of chickens pecking. And essentially what happens is the it's a behavioral phenomenon where the the faster a chicken pecks, the more food they get, which means they grow stronger, which means they can peck and be more aggressive. So it's this cycle. The pecking order really means that we have a rank order based on dominant behaviors. So, and dominant behaviors don't necessarily, there are two sides to this. One is they don't necessarily mean that you actually know what you're talking about. That's a whole other topic we'll cover someday. But it does mean that you're fast. And in a human frame, that really looks like who answers first in the meeting gets the first chance to learn whether they're right or wrong. They also look smarter because they're responding faster. So people expect their answer to be smarter. All kinds of biases going on and the like. So what it means is that the more I ask questions and the more aggressive I am, the more I can climb that meritocracy. But it maximizes only one person's learning and it reduces everyone else's learning because learning is somewhat a zero-sum game inside that meeting, for example. So I guess I'm hearing here the old approach to the sort of uh, a type A and type B or perhaps the alpha type personality in an organization still striving to get to the top by its nature of the beast, if you'd like. It's interesting that that still exists, especially in an era where we're now looking to try and break down silos and there's the idea that even failure is good. As you said, we can even learn by making mistakes, failing forward. But I must say, I must share with you a brief story, if I can, about uh, alphas from my past, uh, the whole notion about alphas fighting it out. I remember taking a seven-day course, a business course, where we were broken up into teams uh, using traditional personality assessment tools of the time, like Myers-Briggs and True Colors and so on, to basically organize everyone into separate teams for this project. Uh, so they had a division or a collection of perfectly suited or non-suited personality types within each team each team oh so you guys didn't know each other no not at all okay so this was a newly formed team this was totally people coming from outside and being matched up by someone else so it was also guaranteed that there would be two alphas in each group and in our group of course there were two and we were both males in this particular situation so we had two alpha males who we discovered quite quickly by the way that we spoke you know the way that we talked and interacted in our conversations that we were both seeking to take over the team, even if it's inadvertently. He, the other alpha male, he thought I was an idiot. I knew he was an idiot. And everything kind of went downhill from there. It became very, very difficult. And this is the classic concept of the forming, storming, norming, and performing, which we've seen for a few decades. But we got stuck in the storming phase. And it became quite apparent that our group was not going to get any forward motion until we actually resolved that. 
So I can see we were a Godzilla and King Kong fighting it out on the landscape. And the only way we were able to resolve this with some clear context was sitting at the table and basically working out a kind of a detente together. So it was certainly interesting to see how this was a perfectly natural thing. Neither of us had ever intended to do this. We all went in with the best intentions of having a great group and winning the contest of the seven-day course against the other teams. And you're totally right. When I think back to it, the dominance that both he and I tried to share in terms of talking more, answering the questions, coming up with the ideas, guiding the team into what they should do, we were just simply stomping all over the landscape with complete abandon. I can certainly see where this came from. So at least that was something that we learned from doing it. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. So to answer one of your previous questions, look, it's a shame that we still do something like that. But in a sense, it's probably one of the key handful of mechanisms that we have in our pro-social playbook as humans, the playbook that got us here. At the end of the day, survival mattered. If there were two alphas that could actually bring a group together and, and lead it and, and help them win the game of survival, that's pretty good for the genome, right? But it doesn't mean it's good for the rest of the people in the individual case. They got to survive for sure, but did they grow? That's a whole different bar. And we're not dealing with evolutionary survival now in the workplace. We're dealing with human development, people feeling empowered. And, and, and essentially, we live in so much better of a world now that we can actually focus on making individuals' worlds better, not just propagating the species. That's an interesting observation because you're making a split or a a fork in the road here between those natural instincts for survival and for, again, climbing to the top of the heap just for purely personal safety and perhaps financial security versus the idea, perhaps, of a team-based collaborative notion being as more efficient. So is that actually where you're going with this? Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. Yeah, actually, we have different needs now. And in fact, the workplace, even when maybe the the meritocracy and the hierarchy of power and and knowledge was useful in the industrial era. And we've talked about that in other episodes. We're really in a different era now where the horsepower of the organization is not from its machines, but from its minds. And the question is, how many of these minds do I want to suppress? And what is the cost for that? To go back to Maslow for a second, one of the things that he, he speculated about was Maybe it would just be better to keep these so-called superior people, the Godzillas and the King Kongs, out of the room and let all the, all the citizens figure out their own solutions. In other words, you know, the teams would actually be better off, happier. Maybe they'd grow faster because the suppressing factor of the superior person is actually quite strong. And so here's the dilemma. In some ways, we still need King Kongs or Godzillas or both. But also we need to bring up people at the same time. So the question is, how do we get them, how do we get them to work together in the same room? Which room? Are you suggesting that they get kicked out of here? I mean, is that what you're talking about, is having a team working together in a room and you say, okay, managers, you're invited to leave? Is that what you're getting at here? Well, yeah, I think it's kind of tricky, especially when you're starting with a, a group that's living in the old model. I don't know any managers that feel good about being kicked out of the room or anything like that. But we can, we can sort of, I can, I'll take you down a little side path. And I think it's really interesting for people to understand that if you're part of a meritocracy, you're actually one of these people that, that researchers call deep specialists. Deep specialists get promoted to manager in a, in a meritocracy, and they get promoted out of the thing that they're very good at. 
This was a popular idea years ago with the book, The Peter Principle, that you get promoted to your level of incompetency, right? And what happens is all the managerial skills that you need, most of them are not skills that got you to the top of the meritocracy. In other words, being a really good deep specialist is is sort of about being a, a fighter and a very, very dedicated to your craft and focused and trying to be better than everyone else. And that's actually, those are characteristics we don't really want in managers. They suppress how well organizations operate. The desire to be the one who has the answer first, that's a horrible way to help people. To be the one who gets it right first, that, that is the opposite of letting people experiment and grow and try. It basically is maintaining your position in the pecking order dominating and directing. It doesn't give people any sense at all of the idea of autonomy and all those powerful empowerment effects that we know about. In a way, what we really want, we want the anti-Godzilla or the Godzilla who doesn't really want to be Godzilla, but he's been cast in this movie and therefore it needs to go through some motions, but in general, it'd be easier if everyone else did all the work. There's, there's some cool research on this. Managers with pleasant affect, managers that that show up being friendly and happy have higher performing teams. Managers that keep away from the team, the team's work, and others they don't micromanage, which is what a deep specialist typically does, have higher performance teams as well, not surprising. Basically, this combination of staying away from the work, being friendly, and not being dominant actually empowers teams dramatically, but it's sort of the anti, like I said, the anti-Godzilla. So it isn't about kicking them out of the room, just to bring come full circle on this, but they need to know how to be in the room in a different way. It actually almost calls into question the, the actual nomenclature of manager. I mean, the whole notion of the word. Yeah, to sound like I have to manage, you have to oversee and guide my team as opposed to what you're offering, you're a far more diplomatic approach to, to team self-evolution. Would you say that this is because... Yeah, hey, Steve, yeah. do you know where the word manage comes from? Oh, the, the etymology of the word specifically? Yeah, yeah, the etymology, yeah. Well, I look forward to hearing what your definition is here. Well, so the word manage only came into popular usage during the Industrial Revolution. I think it was probably about 1910, 1920, when it all of a sudden became a very, very common word. But the word existed before, and if you stop and think about it, it looks a lot like the word manger. And it, it literally meant the, the tender or the person who would care for uh, tend to animals. So it was a very hierarchical term. Now, it, you could say, well, it, is, it is, does have a nice, you know, animal husbandry kind of feel to it and the like, but it, it's also very hierarchical. They are animals, and in that way, that, that manager knows better than the animals do. So when you're looking at a manager as someone who's overseeing a team from its historical perspective here, does, does this apply in your research to both those deep specialists who have risen through the ranks and have become appointed, maybe even against their will to become managers when they are actually subject matter experts and better placed there? Or is this only applicable to those alpha types who claw their way through regardless of their actual mechanical talent for the job or both? Well, yeah. Well, the dominance issue applies to them both, and that's a really cool question, Steve. I think in the case of the deep specialist, it's usually an inadvertent or unskilled dominance. They don't know better. And it was the way they got to the top and a bunch of behaviors, and, and, and they don't really think that they're being malevolent by it, and they probably aren't. 
they're just still being an alpha. But as an, a manager, then you're suppressing team performance. And you know that's one of the things is when the deep specialist is promoted, this is in the research, promoted to manager, the team underperforms compared to when generalists get promoted to manager. So essentially, teams go downhill in the presence of strong presence of deep specialists. And this is the problem with our knowledge worker organizations these days. In fact, there's cool research, except for in a few situations where teams without managers do as well as teams with managers, because you actually retain the deep specialists and don't promote them into a role where they don't get to be a deep specialist. Wow, that's a concept that I can see people having a lot of trouble with. Yeah, yeah, that's true. From the very moment we were placed in kindergarten, we've had somebody overseeing our actions and telling us what to do. So what do you think about that? I mean, what I'm hearing here, I'm speaking theoretically, because on one level I certainly agree, but I can certainly see how this would have enormous problems where everything we do is hierarchical. And the very notion of breaking this down into some sort of collaborative democracy in the place of a meritocracy, theoretically it works beautifully, but George Orwell, who was a contemporary of Maslow, may choose to disagree with this. If you look at his books like Animal Farm, there's always a natural inclination for the alphas to claw their way back to the top again. So what are your answers here? I mean, how can we resolve this? Even though we're using extreme examples, the idea of the opportunity at this moment with a newly defined working environment post-pandemic, we've got something we can work with. So where are the answers? What can we do to pull these strings together? Yeah, I think there's a conceptual shift that someone has to make, which is what you started to get at. I'll give you a version of it. It comes in many forms, but one version of this shift is that if I look at my organization, especially a knowledge worker organization, it shouldn't be a pyramid. Meritocracy is a pyramid, of course, because we're giving people titles and you can only have, it's a land grab as you go up the hill, so to speak, right? But the top third of the pyramid is the most expensive part of the pyramid. And it's also generally the most talented part of the pyramid. But since I've pushed most of my talent into managerial roles where they don't get to exercise that talent, I essentially create an organization with this unconscious malevolence. And the lower two-thirds of my organization is really the productive core. They are really the horsepower of the organization because the managers actually can't do the deeply productive work. And the question is, what is the loss? What's the deadweight loss of using that model? And I can tell you from our work, and also the research in self-determination theory and a few other areas tends to indicate that it's around 20 to 30% of productivity. And that's a big number. That's like two or three people out of every 10. So the question really is to come around to our King Kong and Godzilla metaphor, how much damage do King Kong and Godzilla do while they're having their argument? How much of the, the natural productivity of the organization do they suppress while we celebrate their existence how much worse off are we for having them unless we get them to behave differently? And if we can find a way to get them to behave differently so that everyone can be ridiculously productive, then we can benefit from them being around. I like those terms, but, but this requires a complete script change. I think in the way that organizations look at themselves. There are two names that came to mind as you were speaking here, one from the old world and one from the new world. And the old world is Richard Branson, who founded Virgin in the 70s and 80s, and it continues to thrive. And he's been an advocate always, all through his career, for more equitable training opportunities and self-development opportunities for employees. He was the one who was quoted as saying, you know, you should train people well enough so that they can leave, but you should treat them well enough so that they don't want to. I've always loved that expression. So I think that some degree of that kind of democratic lifestyle brought into modern times 
does exist. I'm not sure if you've heard of Dan Price. He was the founder of Gravity Payment Systems as the CEO. He's a very young guy himself, but he basically pays every employee a base salary of, I think, $70,000 a year. And everyone said, you're crazy. You can't do that. You're overpaying people. But he also brought his own pay down as well. And ultimately, this is paying off hugely in terms of productivity, engagement, self-direction internally, and the success of his organization. So you can say that the money thing is not so much a lever, so much as something that has leveled the playing field, and perhaps it's removed this hierarchy of having managers stomping all over the landscape. Does this sound like an example? Because just to talk about removing managers from the room, even though, again, I agree with this principle, it's going to be met with substantial pushback from people, especially managers. But here you've got an example in both cases of someone who is substantially leveling the playing field for the benefit of the teams, and giving them that trust and empowerment to work as a team without the kind of keen oversight that people always expect. So that's why I think that they seem to resonate with this kind of idea in practice, and in both cases, I think, extremely successfully. (laughs) Richard Branson is old school now? Wow, I guess I'm old enough that he felt new school to me. Now, I think there are a lot of interesting pieces you talk about there. One is is that organizations have to have a vision and a values model that says, yes, we do believe that we're different than this traditional paradigm, this old school industrial paradigm. And then the question is, what are the scripts we put in place? There's some great work done in the 70s, uh, which would qualify as old school work by your definition. A guy named Roger Shank, who wrote the book Scripts, Plans, Goals, and Understanding, one of the early machine intelligence books where they were analyzing How do we actually think? If you're going to make a machine think like us, how do we actually think? And and one of the great examples he had was that in talking about how we have scripts in our head and thousands and thousands of scripts, if you think of the walking into the restaurant script, I'm going to walk up to the host stand, right? And, And there are a set of things that are normal for me to say. There are only like three of them, right? One is like, I have a reservation, or like a table, or where's your restroom? Everything else goes off script and and results in this weird sort of interaction that we end up having. In other words, we're out of script. Well, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. And in fact, scripts are so fundamental to the smooth operation of everything we do, including businesses, that if we want to change the way Godzilla and King Kong operate, we actually need to do a script change. We need to be very concrete and very, very forceful about it. So if we really don't want to kick the managers out of the room, if we're going to avoid kicking the managers out of the room, we want to benefit from their presence, how do we script them in a way that keeps them in the room better, but without a lot of the negative effect? Yeah, I I think going back to the restaurant thing, Uh, And building on what you were saying about the script of moving into a restaurant, uh, it also reminds me of the second part of that situation, which is that when you have a number of people sitting at a table together, you also have an unscripted script of the dynamics of conversation. You can watch people basically assessing the timing and the rhythm of the conversation. It's Again, it's kind of like a dance of people talking together and figuring out when they can speak up and when they can move in. And again, getting that sense of rhythm, which is natural, it's unscripted. This could have come from our earliest years as children, playing with other children in in the room and learning about these rhythms of interaction. So bottom line, this, this notion of unscripted scripting, of how we behave, it seems to be a highly significant underpinning for how teams can take this idea of taking turns, finding out, let's say, the rhythm of human interaction and social situations, and now bringing this back to the workplace. 
it, it once again it comes to that same question are we going to tell managers to sit down and shut up and let other people just work things out for themselves do you think we're going to need special rules for managers to manage themselves as managers i mean to put this down into one single question how are you going to train godzilla to sit down and shut up yeah yeah it's how do, <laughs> I, I had a client the other day that said i think we need to get every manager to do x Right. And as long as every manager just does X, and this was a very specific individual behavior. And I, I thought, wow, you know, that's like, it's kind of hard to do. You're, you're trying to get a bunch of people to individually change things. And, and in fact, it's, if you think about how hard it is, for example, to just stop eating pizza or something like that, right? And I love pizza, but I know it's not, you know, I, I don't need the calories yet. I still eat pizza all the time. So even simple things like not eating pizza is actually hard hard to do. And remember that, that these managers have so much time spent in a form. So they have a script. In other words, they learned that if I follow this script, the way I respond is a script, and everyone responds to that as well. That's how they got into that spot. So we need to take something like dominance. And here's my example. We're not going to say that they can't talk because that would be tough, right? But we're going to change the nature of conversation. We're going to say everyone has conversation this way. This is an example. It's derived from Rand's Delphi technique that they used in the, in the Cold War um, intelligence business and the like to get expert opinions out. But it works really well for other groups. So what we're going to do is we're going to say everyone gets five three-by-five index cards. And they get a big one of those big chisel Sharpie markers, right? And you have to write your thought on the index card, but you have to write it in a way that when you put it up on the wall, eight, eight or 10 feet away, you can read it. So you get like seven or eight words. You have to write words big enough that everyone can see them, right? So it, it means I'm going to struggle a little bit actually saying big, long things. I just have to be very concise about it. But everyone gets five. Everyone has to write five. And what we do is all of a sudden, all the citizens get to write cards. Everyone gets to have ideas. In fact, some people will say, I don't have any ideas. And we'll say, go ahead and write a bad one. Writing a bad one is actually taking a chance to peck and getting a chance to learn. And, and so basically, we make people take turns one card at a time. We don't let Godzilla or King Kong go first or last either. We go around the room. Everyone gets 30 seconds to talk about their card, put it up on the wall, go on to the next person. And we reduce all the dominance while letting people still communicate. And it may be that those managers have the best ideas, but now we're having a conversation where people actually get to think about how they would answer the question. So we bring in sort of this interesting cognitive competition and the like. But it's a rule that we all follow. It's a whole new script. It's a whole new set of scripts. Don't look at other people's cards while they're writing. Take turns, be quiet, all that kind of thing. Now, this is a fundamental piece of our trainings, but it, we, and you know King Kong will always be King Kong. And in fact, is that if there's someone who goes up to the wall and puts more than one card up at a time, it's always a manager, right? They're so used, it's so hard for them to not over-index on that stuff. And they always have cute or funny or charming little excuses for this, but really it's just very difficult for, for them to do. To think of a single idea and, and tolerate not being the one who says three ideas at once to prove how smart they are and how clever they are. <laughs> As he was saying that, I was nodding my head and saying, yep, that's me. I'd be the one <laughs> yeah. doing that. 
uh, which I think is a good learning opportunity anyway, because, I mean, we want to wrap up this podcast with some sort of tips on how to be better managers. And I think, yeah, to say, yeah, you got me exactly. I would be the one with the three cards. So that's one tip right there to, to being better managers, just to envision that. And the notion of how putting three cards out instead of one just completely defeats the purpose of this whole thing you know we're trying to reduce godzilla down using a kind of a b-movie shrink ray so to negotiate so this is a a science fiction double feature right here we've got the monsters but you've also bring it down to this one level so yeah the first thing you think about is going up and breaking those rules or putting up three cards rather than one and that's the problem i'm part of the problem i can recognize that so can we kind of wrap this up in a way of saying, you know, based on these concepts, we have like three or four really powerful ideas already here um, in terms of understanding that the pecking order and the dominant types and the notion of managers being promoted from within as deep specialists or clawing the way to the top as alphas of being overly dominant and doing nothing to serve the team. And then we've seen these techniques for leveling all this out. So what tips could we close on here to be a better manager and to, to truly fulfill the art of management? That's a phenomenal wrap-up, Steve. I love it. And I think I'm going to answer, though, with a little bit of a tease into an episode that we need to do soon. And we're talking about the inadvertent Godzilla, right? I'm a deep specialist. I've become this, and oh my God, I'm in the, I'm in the King Kong. I'm in this fur suit looming above everyone else. What do, I, what do I have to do? What do I have to do to stop being who I am, but yet I can't deny who I am? And part of the answer is to really just slow down and shift and shift to this idea of questions. In fact, if I focus on not having clever answers, but having clever questions, I also change the dynamic. And so in in that way, managers can become, can maintain some of their prominence in terms of being the drivers of what needs to be thought about without being the ones with the answers. It is truly probably the single strongest, easiest antidote to what goes on with King Kong, Godzilla, and the citizens. Have them start asking questions rather than making statements. We will do that episode. Now, the real shift is to do things like stop and say, well, what does everyone else think? Or what do you think? And really mean it. Or I'm not going to speak until at least five other people speak. Looking at things from a question orientation, and by the way, there's a great book out there called Change Your Questions, Change Your Life. What we can do is look at things like, what is it that we need to do better in the future? What are the alternatives to what's going on right now? And essentially just sit down and talk about it and get everyone else thinking about the kind of thing you're thinking about as a manager. And if you think about it, when I combine it with those other things about the friendly affect and the like, and the open conversation and using questions and taking turns, it looks sort of like Godzilla and King Kong saying, hey, we're going to sit down, bring some pizza. Hey, everyone, how's it going? We're going to take a break from our fight. We want to hear how things are going in the city with you guys. And, um, and what can we do to be better about not crushing everything while we're saving your lives and the like? When you invited me to join you on this podcast, Jack, the theme was about being a Godzilla. And if it it is me, what should I do? And I can certainly see that in myself. Uh, But the ask, don't tell message would be certainly my takeaway from this. That's, That's really great, Jack. Thank you. Steve, once again, just awesome having you join me on the podcast here. 
I look forward to our future conversations. And for those of you listening, I hope you'll come back and join us for more episodes, including some of the next ones where we'll be talking about questioning, presence, millennial entitlement in the workplace. And of course, no, none of those are exactly what you think they are. They're probably the complete opposite, which is what we love to do. For that and many other wonderful episodes, please visit us at theartof.management. That's theartof, all one word, dot management. That's the whole URL. Until next time, I'm Jack Skeels. And I'm Steve Prentice. All the best to you.